Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans 6. Romans 6, a wonderful chapter of Romans that we're entering into today. A sermon today covering verses 1 through 4, believers are dead to sin. We need to hear this teaching, we need to hear this doctrine, whether you're a new believer, been around a while as a mature believer, it's an important doctrine that we tend to lose as Christianity goes on through time. Churches tend to lose this, Christians tend to drift away, and we need to be reminded and be brought back so that we line up with Scripture when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification. Let me read to you Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is continuing on through his letter here, his epistle that he wrote to the Romans. He is still talking about justification. He's zooming in on a specific topic related to that, though, and he's talking about what we call progressive sanctification. Justification is something that God declares about us. When we have faith in Christ, we are justified. We are fully righteous. He declares us righteous. And sanctification is a different term. It's a different doctrine related to justification, but it's different in this way. Sanctification, or specifically ongoing sanctification, or progressive sanctification, is a work of God in a believer where he is made more holy. That's what sanctified means. Being made more holy. More Christ-like. That throughout his Christian life, he is being made more Christ-like by the work of the Spirit in him. First, you come to Christ, you're, you're saved because you trust in Christ and you turn from your sin. God has declared you righteous. You are justified. You stand righteous before the judge. There's no more penalty. There's no more condemnation. But for the rest of your life now, God is working through you and you're, to, you're called to work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is working through you in this process called sanctification. It involves living a holy life committed to God. That's important. You're, you're living a holy life and, and you're committed to God, not to yourself, not to the things of the world. You're committed to God. You're, you're separated from all sin in the world. You're separated from the world and its sin. You're separated from the sin that once ruled and reigned over you. And now you're bearing that fruit of obedience that Jesus talks about. Every good tree bears good fruit. You're bearing good fruit, good deeds, good thoughts, good actions. A.W. Tozer, the, the theologian and pastor, once said, When God declares a man righteous in justification, he instantly sets about to make him righteous. You see, at justification... You're not actually righteous, you're declared righteous. There's been a judgment given in your favor because of Christ, but you're not righteous, you're not perfect. You're declared that because of Christ. Now God sets about a process from that moment forward until you go to be with Christ, until you die, until Christ comes back, if He comes back in our life. God is now working on you to be actually more righteous. This is Paul's major topic here in Romans chapter 6. Now, it's really not a new section. He's, he's now talking about sanctification, but it's, again, related to justification. The basis of our justification, Paul has told us in chapter 5, is Christ. Christ is our representative. Adam represented all mankind. He was our representative in that sense. But Christ is our representative when it comes to those who believe in him. So we are justified because of Christ. That great doctrine of justification he taught on in chapter 3 of Romans and chapter 4 of Romans. Then he went into the results of justification in chapter 5. The results being peace, being reconciliation with God. 
you can have peace with God. You can know that you have peace with God. You can know that you've been saved. God wants us to know that as Christians. He does not want us to go through life doubting our salvation. If we're truly saved, He wants us to be assured of it. He wants us to be assured of that. And now we're called to grow in Christ on the basis of that. Now in chapter 6 here and 7 is a section he's going to talk about our assurance. Still focuses on assurance, but it's looking at how our sanctification is tied to what Christ has already done for us in justification. Remember, chapters 5 through 8, all about assurance. We can be assured of our salvation because of what Christ has done. But he's not getting off track here. He's now zooming in. He's digging down. He's drilling down to teach us something about how we're to live based on what Christ has done for us, for his people. So these chapters 6 and 7 are about sanctification. But it's, again, for the sake of helping you, the believer, be more assured of what God has done. What God has done, not just for you, but what God has done in you. He's giving you a new heart. That will look different than it once did when you had a bad heart, when you had an evil heart, when you had a sinful heart. Now, if we look at the end of chapter 5, where we left off as we finished out the chapter there, look at verse 20. Now, the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law came in for a specific reason. God had His plan of salvation. The law is not God's plan of salvation, but the law came in alongside. And it convicted us. And it made us, as unbelievers, want to fight against it. Just like when you tell a child not to do something, they're even more desirous of doing it. That's the way unbelievers are. They hear God's law, and they're increasing their sin in so many ways. And Paul goes on to say, but grace abounded all the more. It's superabounded. Whatever the law brought in our minds and hearts to do, the law didn't cause it, but we cause it from our sin looking at the law. Whatever happened there, Paul is saying, God did so much more, infinitely more with his grace. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So yes, there's sin. Yes, Adam brought sin into the world, but... God's grace abounded all the more. Yes, the law came and we wanted to sin even more, each of us. But grace abounded all the more. Now it reigns in Christ, those who are in Christ. And there's three main points in today's message. Three points I want to show you about how Paul connects sanctification with justification. First of all, the question in verse 1. Can Christians continue in sin? This is a huge question. We should all be asking this as well. It's, it's actually a right question, and we'll come to that in a moment. It's not necessarily coming from an unbelieving perspective or a heretical perspective. Some do ask this that are wandering away from the truth of Christianity. Some are asking this so they can go and sin. We don't really know why Paul brought this up. If it was just for him to go ahead and go into it now, so he brings it up as a rhetorical question. Or if there were actually people in Rome or other churches asking this question. Probably a a mix of both. There were some churches out there confused on this issue and also some strong believers who knew the truth but needed to hear it once again. So he addresses this major question. If grace abounds all the more, then we can continue in sin. Is that what you're saying, Paul? He summarizes in verse 1, what shall we say then? What shall we say about all the things I just taught you in this previous section of the letter? Or more to the point, he restates the question more fully. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Sin here is just a general category. He's talked about transgressions. He's talked about trespasses. Now he's just talking about the general category, hamartia in Greek. means missing the mark. It means falling short of the glory of God. Falling short of the standard that God has set for mankind. Are we to continue in that? Are we to continue to fall short now that we have been justified? The word continue here means to continue in an activity, to persist in something, to persevere. That's the key. 
We're not talking about an individual instance of sin that you may have committed today or yesterday. The idea here is an ongoing sin, an ongoing life of sin, habit of sin, desire to sin, continuing in a sin or a sin pattern that you once did before you were saved. Or maybe running off into a new one. Typically, we want to go back to our old ones and not come up with new ones. The old commentator Shedd said that it's a permanent abiding in sin. And this is in distinction from a temporary lapse into it. It's an indulgence in sin, he said, in distinction from a steady struggle with and conquest of sin. So this is not the occasional sin. This is not the the daily sinful thoughts that you struggle with and fight against. This is remaining in sin. This is continuing in sin. This is running into sin. This is being okay with some major sin in your life. So Paul, based on what you said in 520, is it not right? So here's the question. Is it not right for us to sin because God looks even better every time he shows us grace? If grace superabounds, if grace looks so much better than our sin, then hey, let's just go sin so God can look good. I mean, that's the way sinful minds sometimes work, isn't it? I'm letting God show people how graceful he is. Is that what you're teaching, Paul? That's like saying, let us encourage sickness so that healing may increase. By the way, this is the view called antinomianism. Anti meaning against and nobianism dealing with the law. So these are folks who are against the law of God, against the commands of God. Lawless, Jesus calls them. He says, depart from me. This is people who come to him and they, they say they're Christians on the last day. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. People who said they were Christian, they said they did good works for Christ. Actually, they didn't care about his commands at all. And they were lawless without law. Antinomianism is the teaching that Christians are not under any obligation to obey the laws and commands of Scripture. Now there's some debate if you want to get into it about the Mosaic law and what that means for Christians today, but antinomian is not about that. And antinomian says there's no laws for the Christian. It's all grace. There's no commands we have to obey, they would say. It's all grace. We're under grace now. It's really the opposite of legalism. Legalism is all about the law and not grace. Either people say you've got to obey the law to be justified or continue in your sanctification. You've got to obey the law. They would say this is the opposite of that. This is the other ditch. If you're going down the road, you don't want to fall off into the ditch of legalism. You don't want to fall off into the ditch of antinomianism. You want to go where the Bible leads us to go. God's word tells us the truth on this issue. So antinomianism, it teaches that law has absolutely no place in the Christian life. Antinomianism completely ignores the commands of Jesus for the Christian life. The Sermon on the Mount is ignored. Some Christians may be more holy than others, they say, but it's almost as if by accident. That's just a good thing that you're more holy, but it's not based on what you've done in the Christian life. In other words, a person can just walk the aisle and then just say, I've got my ticket punched and I'm waiting for heaven. There's nothing for me to do. There's nothing for me to obey. I've got my ticket punched, and I'm waiting for heaven. We've probably met folks who might believe that. We've met folks who kind of act like that, even if they don't say it. Some have been more bold to say that. They've had a belief in God, but they're not Christian, like Voltaire, the French skeptic. He said, God will forgive. That is his business. God will forgive, so I'll go and sin. God's business is to forgive. The poet W.H. Auden said, I like committing crimes because God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. He liked the way the world was arranged because he's hearing, God will forgive your sin. God will forgive your sin. And he's just going out sinning. It's a false teaching. It says that, that Christians can go on sinning without any penalty, without any discipline, without any conscience that is pricking us, telling us that we're doing wrong. There are many versions today, many versions. It's been around since the early church, by the way, this false teaching. A couple of views today that have gone this direction. One's called hyper-grace, hyper-grace. Not just God's grace, but hyper-grace. It's all about grace, and there's no focus at all on obedience. They would say that sanctification is not important. Words like obedience and commands are bad. 
They say when we sin, we just need to think back to our justification. When you've sinned, it's not repent and confess and now strive to follow the Lord through the Holy Spirit working in you and, and pray that God would help you do that. No, it's just look back to what Jesus did. It's never, I'm the one that's sin. I'm the one that's wrong. Let's just look back now to something in the past. Usually it's an event like walking an aisle, maybe a baptism. But sometimes it's just looking back to justification in general. That's hyper grace. Now there's a half truth there. When we sin, we do need to look at Christ. We do need to look at Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our example of godliness. But it's a half truth because it leaves out the part of obeying the Lord, pleasing the Lord, giving our life. Paul will talk about this in Romans 12, giving our life as a sacrifice to follow him and be pleasing to him. Not earning our salvation. We're already justified. Now we're going to live a life that's pleasing to him. What we couldn't do before we were saved, we can do once we are saved. Another sort of a a vague area here, I would call it celebrating sin and brokenness. There's all this talk today, particularly in in women's uh, literature and Christian literature, about being broken. One woman even came out with a book. It's called The Broken Way. And in the clip, I think she uses the word broken in two and a half minutes about a hundred times. Just broken, 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 broken. And there's so much talk about brokenness that becomes accepted. We're all broken. Let's all just get used to it. We're all here to care for one another being broken. But there's no desire and mention of holiness. Maybe there is in their life, but they're not talking about it in these books. Brokenness should be celebrated often in these books, they say. And sanctification is downplayed. That's why Kevin DeYoung came out with that little book called The Hole in Our Holiness. The hole in our holiness is that people aren't concerned enough about holiness anymore. It's this huge hole in the American Christianity. The last one I'll mention here is non-lordship theology. You've probably seen a sign, if you've ever gone through Marble Falls, Texas, that really encapsulate non-lordship theology. No rules, just Jesus. No rules, just Jesus. That you come to Jesus and there is nothing he's told us to do beyond coming to him. Now, the most important thing is that we come to Christ. Don't get me wrong. And Paul's just spent how many chapters focusing on having faith in Christ? There comes a point, though, where the believer now has to live out what God has done in him. And God has given us commands to follow. How can you live a Christian life unless God has told you, here's how you do it? Here's how you live. What does it mean to take up your cross, Jesus said, and follow me? That's not justification. He's talking about sanctification. Take up your cross, deny yourself, die to yourself every day, and now follow Christ. Live like he did. How did Jesus live? Did he say, no rules? No, he obeyed God in every way. And we are too, not to earn our salvation, but to live pleasing to the Lord, to show others, by the way, that points others to Christ when we live the Christian life according to Scripture. Paul was wrongly accused of teaching antinomism. If you look back in Romans 3, we looked at this, Romans 3, 8. Paul was preaching the gospel so strongly, which is good, that people were now twisting it and accusing him of this antinomian teaching. Romans 3, 8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say. Some people are slandering Paul, and they're claiming the wrong thing. Here's what they're saying. Let us do evil that good may come. Let us sin so that God can save us and then the good will come. God will show His grace. That's antinomian theology. And this charge against the gospel will come up though when it's being preached rightly. Think about it. We're all sinners and before we come to Christ, we all think we have to just do better, just be better, just reform our life. Just make our life better. There's all these programs. We've got to go through 10 steps and 12 steps and 20 steps and read our Bibles a little bit each day because it's magical if we touch it. And here comes the gospel. And it says, you can do nothing to save yourself. Trust in Christ. He has already done it all. Wow, that is God's grace. And now suddenly, all these thoughts that we had, that we had to do X, Y, Z to be saved, they're washed away. They're wiped off the map. And so people hear the gospel being preached and they start to say, wow, that sounds like that commands, that law of God has no place in the Christian life. Well, that's actually a good charge to have. If you're preaching the gospel 
and somebody just happens to slip into one sermon and hear it, or you're talking to maybe a coworker that's an unbeliever and somebody overhears you, they might think that. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. There's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. This is a very good test, he says, of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. This particular misunderstanding can only arise when the doctrine of justification by faith only is presented. Now we know, once you're in, once you're justified, once Christ brings you in to his body, you are to grow, you are to understand the truth about that. That's why Paul waited till Romans 6 to bring it up. He didn't bring it up in Romans 1. What did he start with there? We're sinners. And then he spent all of 2, chapter 2 about that. Most of chapter 3 just flat out said we're all sinners. We've all sinned. None of us seek God. We're all going to hell without Christ. Now finally in chapter 3 near the end, he brings out the cross and the atonement and propitiation, and all the things that Christ has done for those who believe in Him. Chapter 4, He justifies that. He shows us in the Old Testament where that is and how Abraham was justified. Then in 5, He starts to talk about assurance. And finally in chapter 6, now that He's gotten all that foundation going, He can now talk about sanctification. Douglas Moo, the great commentator on Romans, said, The gospel of grace, properly interpreted, leads not to licentiousness, but to righteousness. So even though people might think that in the beginning, eventually they need to come to Scripture and see what it says, and it teaches us, no, we are not to continue in sin. That's the second point here. Starts in verse 2. The answer to the question, that is inconceivable. It's inconceivable. It's, It's impossible, Paul says. In fact, he says it better than we could all say it, because he wrote in Greek, And we don't speak Greek, and we usually don't write in Koine Greek. Meginito, the strongest possible way you could say no, never, never, never in Greek. In fact, you can translate it different ways to bring that out. Let it never come to pass. Never let it be said. Absolutely not. It is unthinkable. It is inconceivable for it to be this way. It should not even be considered, is what he's saying. It should not even be considered that the Christian life should be that way. Or the King James Version. God forbid. God forbid that a Christian would continue in sin so that grace may abound. John Calvin states it like this. He says, the reformer Calvin says, a person who says that the believer can continue in sin so that grace may abound renders Christ asunder. We indeed, he says, know that nothing is more natural then the flesh should indulge itself under any excuse, and also that Satan should invent all kinds of slander in order to discredit the doctrine of grace. He's not talking about just a misunderstanding that a new believer has. He's talking about this teaching that slips into the church and comes from people wanting to indulge their flesh. They want to say, I'm a Christian, and then run out and sin as much as possible. It was present in Calvin's day. It was present in Paul's day. And it is still present today. So now he opens this up. The answer here. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How can that even be possible? It's impossible. And then he says, how could that even be possible? How could two contradictory things exist in the same time in the same place? Notice he says, we who. Right in the middle of the sentence. We who. That's Christians. Those who believed and trusted in Christ. Those who realize that they can't save themselves. They cannot please God. There's no way to earn your way of salvation. I'm a sinner. I need to trust in Christ. I need to put my faith in Him. Turn from my sin. Turn from my self-worship. And turn to Christ. That's the we who. The church. The people of God. The people that Paul is writing to. He says here, Believer, you've died to sin how can you live to something that you've died to 
the person who has been justified, who's been declared righteous by God through faith alone and Christ alone, has died to sin, to the sin of Adam, to the sin that he just got through talking about in chapter 5, where Adam sinned and that got imputed to us. And eventually the law comes along and we see the law and we sin, just like Adam. But his imputation is on us. And we've died to all that. The believer has died to all that. At the moment you're converted, at the moment you believe, the Christian has died to the life and power of sin. Adam's transgression no longer is on your account. Sin's control over your heart and Satan's control over your heart is no longer a reality. The grip has been broken. The chain has been broken. You've been released From the power of sin. He's going to talk about this all throughout chapter 6. We're not slaves to sin. We're not slaves to Satan. We're not slaves to the power of sin anymore. We're now slaves of righteousness. We're now slaves of Christ. We've been transferred into a new realm. Into a new kingdom. So that grip has been broken. Paul says you've died to it. How did Christ bring about our death to sin? How did he do that? He did that through his work on the cross. When he died for us on the cross, he died and we died. Paul's going to say in a moment, we died with him in a spiritual sense. And so we are dead to sin. He took all the sin guilt that we had built up and he took it off of our account and he gave us his righteousness. That's how he did it. He did it on the cross. Colossians 3.3 For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. You died, not physically. You died spiritually in the sense that your old self, your old man has passed away. The new has come. The old self, the old man is dead. The old man. In Pilgrim's Progress, the old man comes up to Pilgrim and tries to beat him down. Tries to hang on to him. Tries to beat him up from his walk in the Christian life. The old man is always chasing after us. Paul says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How is that possible? It can't be possible. Go to 2 Corinthians. If you go forward a few books here, he talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says the same. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. It It is our driving force. It is the thing that grips us now. Having concluded this, that one died for all. He's talking about Christ died for all that would have faith in him. And therefore all died. Christ died for us. And therefore you're dead to sin is what he's saying. He makes this clear in verse 15. And he died for all. So that they who live would no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We live for Christ now. We don't live for ourselves. We don't live for our own sinful desires. We don't live for the desires of the flesh, the lusts, the sinful thoughts of our mind that we go back to. No, he says we don't go back and live to them. Also, 1 John, if you go forward to to 1 John 3, John says things a little different than Paul. They're not different in doctrine. He just uses different words to bring about the same truths. John being a, a different writer, a different apostle. 1 John 3, 6. Now John's very straightforward here. He's not putting all these exceptions that, that we sometimes want to put into this verse. Listen to what he says. No one, 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him, who lives in Christ, who remains in Christ, sins. He's not meaning there that no one ever commits an act of sin. No one goes on sinning who lives in Christ. No one who sins has seen him or has come to know him. Well, that's convicting, isn't it? If you continue in sin, if it's not an issue, if it's not a struggle, if you have absolutely no progress in sin, he says that you haven't even seen Christ and you haven't come to know him. That's pretty strong language. Go over to verse 9 of chapter 3 there. Now he says everyone. So before he said no one, Now he says, everyone who has been born of God. So this is the flip side of it. Everyone who's now been born of God does not sin. Does not remain in the sinful habit, sinful pattern that you once did. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Because his seed abides in him. 
And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. You've been given a new heart. Regeneration has occurred. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. John just says, look, if you hate your brother, if you hate your fellow Christian, you're not even a Christian. If you just hate other Christians, if you just hate your church, then you're not saved. You can't be. It's not possible. That's the sin that he focuses on there. But there are many sinful lifestyles, sinful patterns, remaining sin that people commit. Here's how one scholar put it, Barry Horner, great commentary. He said, how shall a child of God have a lifestyle that conforms to the God of this world's agenda? How shall a transient pilgrim seeking the celestial city yet solicit entertainment and trade at Vanity Fair? That's a Pilgrim's Progress reference. Pilgrim's on the way to the celestial city to heaven, and he stops through Vanity Fair, and that's where all the temptations are. And they're trying to keep him there, and they're trying to keep faithful there. I won't run the story for you if you haven't read it. You should read that. But how can you hang out in Vanity Fair the rest of your life while you're on the way to the celestial city? He says, Horner says, it's unthinkable that the prodigal son would desire to return to the pig pens that he formerly served in the far country so as to simulate more love from his father. Can you imagine the prodigal son going, let's go back to the pig pens so my father can love me all over again. Why would the son not go back to the pig pens? Because he says the father in the parable declares, this son of mine was dead and has now come to life again. That parable is about salvation. It's about regeneration. It's about justification. He was dead and he's now come to life again. A person who's been justified cannot continue to live on in a sinful manner. Sanctification comes from justification. If you've been justified, then sanctification is going to occur. It's not an option. Now we'll talk in a moment about what happens when you resist that. But it's not an option. It will happen because it comes from justification. That's what Paul means. He's not making all these exceptions. He's not putting in fine print. He's saying, look, if you're justified, it is inconceivable that you would remain in sin. These two are inseparable, sanctification and justification. They're inseparable. They're, they're connected in this way. Because the work of justification that God has done in us, we can now make progress in our battle with sin. He's going to explain this all throughout chapter 6. It's going to be a great time for us as we look at chapter 6 and we examine our own life and our heart. Charles Spurgeon said, Sanctification must not be forgotten or overlaid by justification. We are Protestants. We are evangelical. We are reformed and we preach the gospel of God's grace and we preach justification. But we can't forget about sanctification. We can't spend all our time on justification and never touch on sanctification. We wouldn't even be like the Apostle Paul or Jesus who taught on both because they're connected. Spurgeon goes on to say, We must teach plainly that the faith which saves the soul is not a dead faith, but a faith which operates with purifying effect upon our entire nature and produces in us fruits of righteousness to the praise and glory of God. Believer, what, what's your identity now? If you're in Christ, what is your identity? Are you the person remaining in sin, continuing in sin? Or is your identity in Christ? It's, it should be in being one with Christ, which means you are His, that He owns you, that you're united with Him in this once-for-all separation from sin and its power over you. Sometimes we get too used as Christians to saying, well, no one's perfect. Let's just stop using that phrase. Unless somebody's really pressing you legalistically. That's a good place to use it. Well, no one's perfect. Brother, you're not perfect either. So why are you pressing me with this legalism? Sometimes we say that to excuse our sin. God says, be holy as I am holy. Jesus says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. The question is not, is it possible to be perfect in this life? That's obvious. If you've lived one second as a Christian, that's obvious. That's not the question. The question is, how much do we strive and love the Lord and obey and use the power that He has given us to glorify Him through our life? 
You see, the focus is wrong if we start saying, well, no one's perfect. What do we just do? We dulled the knife of God's word. Paul doesn't say, well, you can't remain in sin. That's inconceivable, but no one's perfect. What does he say? May it never be. May it never be. And even if we're not remaining in sin, let's say we still struggle and fight with sin. A verse like this encourages us to continue the fight, to continue the struggle. Now, thirdly, he gives a a proof, a proof. Some say it's an illustration. I think it's, it's a proof of this. He, he's, he's telling them, you know this already because you know about baptism and you know about being baptized into Christ. So the proof in verses 3 and 4 is baptism into Christ. He's going to tell them to think back to something that they know already. And he's not going to get into all the details that we want him to get into sometimes. He just says this, do you not know? Do you not understand this doctrine already? That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. They already know about baptism. They're not sitting there wondering, sprinkling, immersion, baby baptism, believers. No, they know about baptism. It's immersion of believers, by the way. Um, they know what it means. To baptize in Greek means to dip, to immerse, to plunge, to dunk. Sometimes even the... Uh, the, the military writers and the historians of the day like Josephus would write about an army coming in and just smashing the city. And he would say something like the city was baptized. It was plunged into this chaos. That means to fully immerse, to plunge, to dunk. The Christian baptism specifically is a sign of the believer's entrance into the new covenant relationship with God. When you're plunged, when you're dunked like we saw a few weeks ago over here. When you go under the water and you come out of the water, that symbolizes something. It symbolizes what God has done in your heart. What you testify to, if if you've been baptized here, you give a testimony that matches what's about to happen by the symbol, the symbology. What is baptism? It's a public profession to both the church and to the world that you've died to sin and you've been raised with Christ. If you think about it, that's what it really is. You're identifying with Christ. Jesus said, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're identifying with the Trinitarian God of the Scripture. And so it's an outward sign of the spiritual conversion that's already happened. You get baptized after you've been saved, and it's pointing back to what has happened inside. Other people didn't see what happened inside your heart when God regenerated you. Now you're professing that, and you're showing the symbol of that through baptism. So the Roman believers, they must have been very familiar with that. They understood that. There wasn't all these debates back then about baptism. They understood what Paul was saying. He doesn't need to go into an explanation on baptism theology here. He just uses it as a proof and then moves on and connects it to what he's saying. Notice Paul says that we are baptized into Christ. Into Christ. When you see that language in Christ in Paul's writings, or into Christ, that's union with Christ. You've been united with Christ. You're with Him. You've been put in Him. You have been united in Christ. You can think of it as identification or participation, but I think the word union is the best. It's what theologians like as well, Reformed theologians. You are now in a union with Christ. And baptism now symbolizes it. You see how he shortened all this down? You've been baptized into Christ. Remember that? Remember when you were baptized into He's not saying baptism saves. He's not saying that you went under the water and that did some miraculous, magical thing and all your sins disappeared. He's not talking about baptismal regeneration, which is practiced by many people out there, that somehow the moment of baptism is when you are regenerated because of the baptism. That's a work. That's a work. Let's go throw some people into the water and bring them out. And poof, they're saved. No, that's not how it works. Where has Paul said anything about that in the Romans? He's been talking about the gospel for five chapters. He said nothing about that. In fact, it's so clear what baptism is to the early church that he can just use it as a proof and he doesn't have to explain all those fine details that we often talk about and should today because it's been corrupted over time. So when is a person united with Christ. Well, that happens at the moment that you're converted. You're put into Christ. You're united with Christ. 
And now baptism in the early church is going to come pretty soon after that. You're changed. God has given you a new heart. You have been justified, declared righteous. Okay, now you're going to be baptized. As time goes on in church history, more bad theology comes in. So now before somebody gets baptized, by the second and third century, you need to go through a class, a baptism class, so you understand the fundamentals of the faith. Because there's all these people wanting to get baptized that aren't Christians. Then eventually that gets pushed back to the end of life, and they really get corrupted. They start saying, well, let's have your sins washed away at the end of life. And then they say, what about a baby who dies? So by the third and fourth century, let's put it at the beginning of life. And that's where infant baptism starts. But the Bible says believers are baptized. And Paul is saying, remember when you were baptized? Remembering what that symbolized, don't you know that we were baptized into Christ? And at that time, when you were converted and baptism pointed to that, you were also baptized into his death. This all comes together in a package. The baptism just points to what's actually happened inside. You're with Christ. You're with him. You're united with him. He died. You died with him. Spiritually speaking, you died with Christ. Your sin is dead. It's in the tomb. That's where he's about to go. It's in the tomb. It's gone. Here's what he says in Galatians 3.27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You see how you can just jump to this illustration? You've been baptized. And when you stood up, you confessed, you testified to what happened in your heart. And Now you have a clothing of Christ, a garment basically, not an actual garment, but spiritually speaking, you have a garment of righteousness. When did that happen? Not the time you got in the water, the time you were saved. Water baptism points back to that time. So again, he's not speaking of baptismal regeneration. He's just saying, remember, you were baptized. That symbolized your union with Christ and Christ died and you died to sin because you were baptized in his death. That's what it means to be plunged into his death, to be immersed together with him, to be united with Christ means that you share the effects of his death. Namely, what Paul's going to say later in verse 10 of this chapter, that he died to sin once for all. Christ never sinned. What is Paul talking about there? Christ never sinned. How can he die to sin? He died to sin once for all for us. He paid the price for us so that we no longer live in sin. He died to sin. Then verse 4, he continues now with this proof. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So we're united with him. We Paul is saying, remember when you were baptized, what that symbolized? You went down, you were plunged. Think about what that meant that happened in your heart. You went down, you're dead. And it's such a fact that you were dead to the old self. That Paul says you are buried with him through baptism. That old man, that old self, he's in the tomb. He's dead. Believers now have that old man Buried. The old self, the old sinful self literally is entombed. Not just buried, but entombed. Put in the tomb. The stone has been put in the way. And when we come out of the tomb, it is going to be not the old self, but the new self. Burial is mentioned here because he wants us to confirm this reality. It's, it's obvious. It's awesome. It's great. The old self is dead. How can you continue to live in sin when the old self, the sinner, the one who loved sin, is dead? In the tomb, buried, sealed off. The old life, the old way of sin has died. It's been finally put in the tomb. Our old self is dead. Let's have a funeral and celebrate, is basically the idea here. Let's have a funeral for the old self and say, good riddance. Now the purpose he gets at and the rest of verse 4. Why were you buried with Christ? So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Now he's going to later compare that to the Christian. But stop right here. What happened with Christ? He died. He was buried in the tomb. And then he was raised from the dead. And this all happened through the glory of the Father. God's glorious power. God's awesomeness was put on display when he did that. He raised Christ from the dead. 
It was a vindication, Paul's already said in Romans 4, it was a vindication of our justification that he would be raised from the dead. And God's glory was put on display. Now look, it's also going to be put on display when a believer is united with Christ and lives a new and holy life. He says, here's the purpose of that. Here was the purpose of what Christ did and how he was raised and why he was raised so we too might walk in newness of life. He does not say here that Christ died so you could continue on loving your sin, living out your sinful life, focusing on yourself. No, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, there's an analogy here. Christ, yes, he was perfect. He never sinned. He went, he died for sinners. He was raised from the tomb to a new life. And just like that, when our old self dies because we're united with Christ, and now we're new, we're to live in newness of life. A new life, not like the old self. This is what I often talk about when I baptize somebody. That Romans 6 gives us this picture. That in baptism, you go down into the water, and that's symbolizing that your old self is dead. You come up out of the water, that's symbolizing newness of life. And this is the verse for that. It's so clear that Paul could just say it. Now, some people say, this isn't water baptism. There's no water here. There's only a couple of of godly men who say that. We can disagree with them. It's pretty clear Paul wants the Romans to think of water baptism. Not because it saves you, but because it's a great picture of this union with Christ, and it testifies to it. What is newness of life? Well, it's a taste of the new life that is to come at the resurrection. There will be a perfect life. None of us can go around in heaven saying, no one's perfect, no one's perfect. We're all going to be perfect, praise the Lord. But right now, he's saying, there's a new life. There's a new life in the sense that you're a new person. And you live for Christ. And your heart isn't chasing sin anymore, but it's following Christ. It's focusing on Him, Hebrews 12. You're running the race, looking at Christ. Not taking your eyes off of Him and looking at everything else. You're focused on Him. You have a new relationship with sin. You have a new relationship with Christ. Sometimes we ask new members. They come in. We sit down for the interview process. If you've been through it, you know it's pretty easy. If you haven't been, you can fear it a little bit because Frank asks all kinds of hard Greek and Hebrew questions. Everybody else knows that's not the case. But I do ask sometimes, how has your relationship with sin changed? It's not a hard question. I just want to know, how's your life been since you came to Christ? And sometimes the follow-up would be, how's how's your relationship to God or Christ changed? If they say, my relationship with sin is still the same as it's always been, which I don't think anyone's ever said that. But if they did, then they haven't been saved. If they say that and believe that and know that to be true, that's not a Christian because a Christian has this newness of life. Titus 2.14 says Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works, zealous, focused, jealous so much. You love God so much, you're only going to seek him and please him. Zealous for good works. James Montgomery Boyce says, as a result of this union with Christ in his death and resurrection, That old life of sin in Adam is past for us also. We can never go back to it. We have been brought from that old life, the end of which was death, into a new life, the end of which is righteousness. So instead of a life of antinomianism, instead of wondering how much sin we can get away with, how much sin we can go back to, believers are to live for Christ. They're to live for Christ. They're to follow the commands that God has given us, living, pleasing to the Lord. What if, though, what if you're still continuing in a life of sin? What if you have gone into sin for so long and you're saying, I don't understand this verse. How can this be true? But I'm a Christian and have gone on into sin for some time. Well, first of all, there's backsliding. There's backsliding. There, there's, you're making progress, but you're in one of those little valleys and you're, you're zoomed in on the chart so you just see the valley that you've fallen into and you're backsliding. 
But eventually God is going to, as you repent, as you confess, God is going to restore you in a sense, bring you back up where you're going upward instead of downward on the sanctification chart. There's another option. Another option, this is one we don't think of often, is that God will stop you from sinning. James Montgomery Boyce talks about this. God will stop you from sinning by disciplining you strongly. And the strongest form of discipline in the Bible is death. He talks about the Corinthians coming and they're so trashing the Lord's Supper. They're mocking it. They're getting drunk. They're doing all these things they shouldn't be doing. And he says, some of you had died because of that. He didn't say they're not Christians. He says, some of you Christians have died. John talks about the sin leading to death, which I take as a Christian continuing on in a sin that he shouldn't be in and God removes him. It doesn't happen often, I don't think, but it does happen. And the, the last option, the one that I think Paul really wants us to think about here, is you're not a believer if you continue living in this sin. Not talking about a stumble, not talking about a, a backslide for a while. A continual life of sin, that's not a Christian. I mean, that's just what he says. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You need to turn to Christ. You need to confess your sins truly and turn to Him for salvation. There's no exceptions. Paul's not saying, well, you might be, you might not. Now, if you have no power over sin, if you're living still in this reign of sin, this reign of death that he talked about in chapter 5, you're not in the reign of grace. And people who pretend to be Christians go around saying they can sin all they want. It's no big deal. And they even say to other Christians, why don't you come along with me and join me? It's no big deal. That is wrong. And you need to repent and turn to Christ. For those who are in Christ, this ought to encourage us. We can know that we're new. We can know that we're not going to go back to the old self. He's dead. The old man is gone. Now we can serve the Lord. Now we have the ability, the heart, the power, the spirit to serve Christ. Let's get busy doing that. What are we doing with our lives? Let's live for the Lord. We're going to come back to this all throughout chapter 6, but let's live for the Lord. There are plenty of time wasters out there in our world. Let's get busy doing those zealous good works and good deeds. That's not just actions of niceness towards others. That's part of it. There is a lot of godly things that we can strive to do more of and do better at as Christians. So let's ask the Lord's help right now for that. Lord, help us this morning to live for you fully. Jesus, we we need you to show us the way, and you have here in Scripture. Point us back to your life and the life of your apostles, who are the examples as well for us. And ultimately, though, Jesus, you're the ultimate example. Help us to know you in, in such a vital, experiential way. And that we desire every day to be a day of sanctification, a day of holiness, a day of seeking you, a day of serving you, a day of loving you. Let us really examine our hearts today. Let us make sure we're not remaining and continuing in sin. And let us run the race as fast as we can to show others how wonderful you are as our Lord. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.